It takes a lot for the pastors to forget that they're leading a service. So, well done. <laughs> Music was amazing. Thank you guys for that offering. Uh, one quick thing before we get started, if you look in your bulletin, you'll notice that uh, the sermon and the scripture today, it says the end of Mark chapter two going into chapter three. Uh, that's wrong, not because of the people who printed the bulletin, but because of me. On Thursday, I changed my mind. <laughs> so uh, today we're actually gonna talk about the first part of, of Mark, Mark chapter two. Um, and this actually comes from, I, I read these passages uh, in community each week. I have three groups that meet um, and we read through the entire chapters um, and we go through it, and when we do that, I gain insight, I understand things in a different way that happened this week, and it helped me to understand that we really need uh, this story at the beginning of Mark chapter two. So what's in your bulletin, we'll do next week. I just wanna let you know that. But I also tell you that to say that the classes that meet um, that are going through the Gospel of Mark together, like it matters. Like it's not just something for you to attend, it's something for you to contribute to. And it can really have an impact on what we do here in worship. Does that make sense? So if you're not part of a class, if you're not studying this, uh, let us know and we'll find, help you find a place. Um, also, before we get started, I just wanna uh, remind you of something I mentioned a couple weeks ago. And it's a book. And it's this book called Jesus the King by Tim Keller. Um, and I just tell you this, not to sell the book, but this book has fundamentally shaped my understanding not only of the gospel of Mark, but just of the gospel itself. Um, I am so familiar with this book. I read it at least once a year. Uh, but I become so familiar with this book that at this point, uh, you could just assume that anything you hear today that's remotely interesting or slightly profound, it came from him, not me, right? Um, but that also means that uh, anything you hear today that makes you mad, uh, it came from Tim Keller, <laughs> not, not from me. Um, so this is our third week uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and, and we've said that our study, our purpose in studying this Gospel, it's not to go verse by verse, it's not to cover every story. What we're doing is we wanna see how Mark can help us answer four simple questions. We wanna build some definitions around a few words. And the first question is, what is the Gospel? We wanna be able to define the Gospel. What is a disciple? Who are we? And what are the essentials of our faith? That's what we're gonna wrestle with this year. Um, and we've already made some progress on the first question. Uh, we've seen over the past couple weeks that unlike religion, which offers us advice, the gospel is news, and it's news that changes things. And it's such good news that it demands from us a response. And we talked about the fact that religion, advice, it can just be ignored. But really good news demands a response because it changes the way that we live. And we've seen that the beginning of this good news is this earth-shattering announcement that in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near to us. That 2,000 years ago, something happened that changed reality forever. That in the person of Jesus, even before his death and resurrection, there was a physical point in time and space where the kingdom of God was fully present on earth. That when people encounter the person of Jesus, they find hope, they find healing, but most importantly, as we'll see today, they find forgiveness. Um, so today, we're gonna add to our understanding of the gospel. We'll continue to see what it is and what it is not. Uh, but to do that, I wanna start by having you ask yourself and answer to yourself a question and do all of this internally. Don't say it out loud because to be totally honest with you, I'm kind of setting you up to fail, okay? So um, just a little bit. Uh, here's the question. If I only had, then I'd be. Fill in the blanks. 
Like answer that for yourself and, and listen, like be really honest. Because we need to know where our hearts really are if they're going to be transformed by Jesus. If I only had, then I'd be. I think a lot of people, especially people who are just going about their daily lives, like just trying to make it, right? Many of them would, uh, they'd say something like, um, if I only got this job or this promotion, right, then I'd have security and I'd be satisfied. Or maybe if I only found the right person, then I would be loved. If I only had more time, then I could rest. If I only had this physical issue healed, then I'd be made whole. If I only had, then I'd be happy. Tony Campolo was a sociology professor at Eastern University in Philadelphia, and he tells this story. I've shared it with some of you. Um, he has two kids. His kids' names are Bart and Lisa. Well done. I'm very proud of you. I wasn't sure how many people in the service would know that. Yeah, uh, the Simpsons, uh, Bart and Lisa. Those are the names of his kids. Uh, but he tells the story that one night, Bart was a little guy, and he's heading off to bed. And as he makes his way up the first couple of stairs, he turns back to his family and he says, all right, I'm going to be praying to Jesus in just a minute. Anyone need anything? <laughs> like, how often do we try to go through Jesus to get something else. Like something that we are convinced is the thing that will really save us. Like the promotion, the relationship, the physical healing. Like how often do we use Jesus as a vehicle to get something else? Something we're convinced will make us happy and whole. Why is he not enough? So this is what our story is about today. This story uh, aims to heal us, but to truly heal us. And as we read the story, we're gonna find some confusion. We're gonna find a little controversy. So buckle up, you ready? This is Mark chapter two. I'm gonna read verses one through 12. Mark writes this. He says, when Jesus came back to Capernaum a few days later, it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer space, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And some people came, bringing to him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and they were thinking it over in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Now immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts, said to them, why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet. Um, some translations, actually most translations say he jumped up, he leapt 
and picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray really quick. Father, uh, pray that as we approach the scripture as a family here in this place, um, that we are truly coming uh, to the feet of Jesus, that we are coming with a posture to receive what it is you have for us, not what we came expecting from you. Um, So to do that, uh, we pray that you would open our minds, our eyes, our hearts, our ears, that we could receive it. And as always, that you would show us the ways that our hands, our feet, and when necessary, our mouths uh, can be used to share this good news, to give others the hope that we have found in Jesus. And we pray all this in his name and all God's people said, amen. So, So if I asked you to give that story a title, like to sum that story up in just a couple words, you might be tempted to do what one of our translation does. Uh, The New American Standard Bible, which is actually probably one of my favorite translations, um, it gives a title to the story, and the title it gives is The Paralyzed Man Healed. That's the wrong title. The title's wrong. The headings in our translations, they're provided by publishers. (laughs) They're not given to us by the translators. So they're not important. Like, they're not relevant. They're just there to help guide us through, right? But sometimes they actually cause a problem because what they do is they preload us. They give us a little summary and they send us in the story thinking the story is about one thing when it's really about something else. One of the greatest examples of these is the story of the prodigal son. That story is not about a prodigal son. It's about something so much more. But just the heading itself has colored the way that we read it. Now, the NIV, other translations, they get a little closer. Um, They use this heading. They say, Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Okay, that's better. But of course, you know what I'm gonna say, the Greek does it best because it gives no heading at all, right? Like, just let the story tell us what the story is about. And I'm telling you, this story is not about a healing. Like, the healing in this story is an illustration of power. The story is about the power to forgive. This is the first of five stories that are gonna take us through chapter two and into the first part of chapter three. And we're gonna see that the power and authority to forgive sins, it is the beginning of the world turning upside down. And by the time we get to the end of that fifth story, the beginning of chapter three, the religious leaders, the authorities whose world is being turned upside down, they're already plotting to kill him. So there are some things that you need to know really quick about sickness and sin, about religious, religion and politics in the first century. And so this is important, not just for today, but for the next couple of weeks. So just bear with me just for a minute. Um, the first thing you need to know, it's very important where Jesus is. He's not downtown in Jerusalem near the temple. He's out in the countryside. He's in a village filled with fishermen and their families. Now, people in rural communities They lived under excessive taxation, not only from Rome, but even their own people, the tax collectors, who added on top of what Rome expected. And sometimes it was so burdensome, they'd have to sell off their land. They'd even have to sell themselves into servitude just to survive. So they were poor, and oftentimes sickness and physical ailments, they were a result of these really difficult living conditions. Now, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they went around saying that the people lived in these conditions and they suffered these ailments because of their sin. Like they were often in debt, 
were really suffering and those with power and authority explained that their sin was the reason for it. So the only option they had was to go to the temple in Jerusalem because that was the only place where they could be forgiven. It was the only place where people who were kept from the community, who couldn't even practice their faith because of some sickness, it's the only place where they might even have the chance to be made whole if those with power and authority said so. It was about a 70 mile journey from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Like what do you think it took for rural fishermen of low status to get to Jerusalem? To offer the sacrifices, to pay the tithes that they had to pay to even have a chance to be restored. Like they had to give up more of what little resources they already had. Where did we find Jesus? At the temple? No, he's 70 miles away in the village with the fishermen. All right, so back to the story. And here's where a little confusion starts to set in uh, for us, but really for the people in the story. And I want you to like put yourself in the story and just imagine. Uh, this paralyzed man, many of you are familiar with it, he's lowered through the roof by his friends. It's debatable, but some people believe that the house was actually Jesus's home. It says that Jesus was at home, which means that what did they do to Jesus's house? <laughs> I was talking about this with somebody after the last service and he's like, what do you think happens after this story, right? Like everybody's like, hey, Jesus, can you like, you know, miracle a patch in that roof or something? Like, I don't know. Uh, but, but they bring him, they lower him through the roof. Uh, what did the friends want for this paralyzed man? What did they want? They want him to be healed. Now, the paralyzed man never says a word, but it's pretty safe to assume what he wanted, right? Like, they came to Jesus so he could be healed. And what does Jesus do? Verse five, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> okay, so like, I just try to imagine the look on the friends' faces at that moment. Like, covered in sweat and like whatever it was they just had to dig through. Like I can just see them staring down through that hole, right? All the people inside looking up at them, trying to figure out what's going on. Everything they just went through, what went through their minds when Jesus responds by saying, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> but what must have gone through the mind of the paralytic who even after Jesus says that is still laying on his mat? Um, thanks. <laughs> like, it's not really why I'm here, but thanks. If I only had, then I'd be. If only I could walk, then I'd be happy. In the moment, absolutely. Right? That would be dramatic. It'd be a life-altering event, no doubt, and for his good. But what about a month or two later? Years later, still in his rural village, struggling to make it, to make ends meet under excessive taxation, under the threat of an occupying Roman empire, his own people, the religious elite, lording their authority over him. What about the next sickness? The next struggle? The death of a loved one? Eventually his own death? Right, if I only had, 
then I'd be happy? Until you're not. Like, can you imagine what I would be like if I got everything I wanted? (laughs) Everything I asked for. Like, we don't even do that with our own kids. I mean, we shouldn't. (laughs) Because if we do, we wind up wrestling with little tyrants. And if we don't do that for our own kids, why do we get so twisted and bent out of shape when God refuses to give us the things that we want? In Keller's book, he refers to this writer named Cynthia Heimel. Um, she had this experience, excuse me, she had this experience. She, she knew a handful of people who were striving in New York City to make it as actors, um, seeking stardom, right? And, and they actually did. And if you read her article, they're people that you would be familiar with. Um, they believed that if, if they only had fame and fortune, uh, they would be happy. And here's what she said. Uh, she said, more than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing they were striving for, the thing that was gonna make everything okay, that was gonna make their lives bearable, that was gonna provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, that thing had happened. And nothing changed. Because they were still them. And the disillusionment that followed turned them into people who were howling and insufferable. Miserable and miserable to be around. She goes on to say this. She says, I think if God really wants to play a rotten practical joke on us, he'll give us our deepest wish. Like many of you know that my father-in-law, he's deep in this battle with pancreatic cancer. Um, He is the only godly father figure that I've ever known. Um, Pancreatic cancer is no joke. Um, Of course, I want him healed. (laughs) I want nothing more than for him to be free from his suffering. I want nothing more than that little family group text that we have for the message to pop up, say cancer free. Of course. But what I know is that he will be. I know he will be because he's covered by and has claimed Jesus' power to forgive. So he will either be healed in this life or he will be fully and completely healed in the next. What he knows and what I know, as difficult as the journey is, is that either way, by Jesus' power to forgive, that is how he will be healed. And I tell you that because I don't want you to think that I'm taking any of this lightly. I'm not dismissing the needs of those who need real healing. There are people in this room right now who are undergoing treatment for cancer and other things. And we want that real healing and Jesus is not dismissing or blind to that either. But here's what Jesus knows that I often forget. That even if I got everything I asked for, I would still be me. If I got everything I wanted, I would still be me. I would still be a broken sinner in need of grace. And the only hope for me to be made whole is to become more like him. Y'all, Jesus is not here to pull rotten practical jokes. He's here to give us a greater gift than we would even ask for. Like this might be unsettling, so again, I don't say it lightly or dismissively, but the gospel is not about healing our physical suffering in this life. The gospel is about the forgiveness of sins, which is the only hope we have for real healing. 
for a life free from pain and suffering, sickness and death forever. This might be unsettling and it's the hard thing to say, but easing my present suffering isn't the focus of the gospel. Removing my sin is. Now listen, we can and we should pray for healing if it's in God's will. Like healing in this life is certainly possible. It happens in our passage. Many of us know stories of it happening today. Hallelujah. But the promise of being restored in relationship to God, of living forever as a citizen of God's kingdom, that is the laser focus of Jesus and his gospel. The gospel is the good news that changes everything, that demands a response. The good news that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal what is actually broken inside me. What I'm called to do is recognize my real need. Turn to him and receive that gift. But this is why this story is not just confusing, it's also controversial. Because it does introduce a controversy between Jesus and between the religious leaders who are watching as all of this unfolds. And it's a controversy that's gonna point a couple years down the road. Verse six says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and thinking it over in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God? And you know what? Like they're right. They're not wrong. Only God can forgive sins against God. Like if you sin against the person to your left, is it in any way relevant or meaningful if I tell you that you are forgiven? No, it does nothing. Like, you need to be forgiven by the one that you've offended. God is the offended. In our sin, we are the offender. So the scribes are right. Only God can forgive sin. Are you now starting to see the story underneath the story? Are you starting to understand why Mark tells us this story? Verse eight, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit, that they were thinking that way in their hearts, said to them, why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, he asks, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. So that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Like there it is, like that's the phrase. And the religious leaders, they knew exactly what Jesus meant. That phrase, the son of man, it comes directly out of the book of Daniel and it is a clear proclamation by Jesus that he is not only Israel's Messiah, but that Israel's Messiah is God himself. That Jesus is saying that he is God, he is the one who can forgive sins. He is the Messiah, not only of the people of Israel, but for all humanity. So they were right when they protested that only God can forgive sins. They were wrong in not recognizing their Savior and Lord. For not recognizing that in the person of Jesus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was standing right in front of them. So there's one last thing before we're done. Um, Jesus says another thing in this story that's confusing and controversial. Christians have been wrestling with this for centuries. 
Uh, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And we need to understand this if we're gonna fully define the gospel. Um, so th- there have been healers throughout history, right? Just even pre-medicine, people stumble across cures and ailments for what's bothering you. Uh, we have trained healers in this room right now. We have doctors and nurses. Uh, there are some who have the spiritual gift of being a vehicle through which God heals. 1 Corinthians 12, James 5, other scriptures all testify to that truth. Healing happens even today. I know people who have been miraculously healed. It's a number of ways that healing can happen. I am convinced that it's harder for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven than it is to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk. Because when Jesus asked that question, Jesus saw something nobody else in the room did. He saw the cross in his future. He saw a couple years down the road to what was waiting for him. And he saw the painful path that it was gonna take to get him there. Like beaten and crucified because political and religious authorities conspire together when they realize that their world was about to be turned upside down. But it was more personal than that. Uh, Jesus was dismissed by his own family. We'll see that in chapter three. He's betrayed and abandoned by his disciples. He's accused by his own people. He's sentenced to death by Gentiles. He was rejected and crucified by all of us. It is harder for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they are. Like when somebody offends me, And maybe I say, it's okay, don't worry about it. Like if it's a real offense, and I say, it's okay, don't worry about it, I forgive you. I'm just gonna let it go. I'm gonna forget it ever happened. No worries. You guys ever done that? How's that work? Does that ever come up later? (laughs) You ever find yourself holding on to some baggage? (laughs) Right, that's what happens when we say, I forgive you, because often... We, I don't know, maybe we mean it, but it doesn't do anything. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they are. God's word does not return void. He is the word made flesh. And when he says something, that thing happens. In the creation story, God, what, what was the verb? God spoke, said, and what happened? Whatever he said was. <laughs> when Jesus says something, that thing happens. And the reason that the path to forgiveness is harder is because it meant dying on a Roman cross to make it happen. And he knew that, he saw it, and he said yes. He said yes for that paralytic, and he says yes for you and me. Y'all, healing can come in a number of ways, some incredible, and thank God for it. But there is only one whose hands and feet could be nailed to that cross. There's only one who was broken to pay the price for my brokenness. There's only one who could carry the weight of our betrayal. Only one who could die the death of every sinner that's ever lived so that we might have life with God forever. A life where we are fully healed, restored, made new, not just until the next illness sets in, but healed and restored forever. All right, so what? And it's actually, it's really simple. That question that you asked yourself at the beginning, if I only had then I'd be. Y'all, there is only one right answer. And when we can truly in the depth of our being say, 
if I only have Jesus, then I will be complete. Then we will have accepted God's forgiveness. And we don't all come to him that way. Few of us do. That paralyzed man didn't. But Jesus receives us. He doesn't send us away until we're there. He receives us. But it's when Jesus himself becomes our greatest desire, not what he can do for me, but when he himself becomes my greatest desire, that's when the healing begins. He is the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who can truly save. But y'all, that grace to save does not come cheap. So if we truly believe this, like if we are his disciples, if we are a place on earth where Jesus is king, then what should sinners find when they walk through that door? Like they should find a room full of people who are living in grateful obedience because we understand the weight of what Jesus has done to truly heal me. That he calls me his child, that he is making me new and that I get to live in that truth today. They should find a room full of people who are learning that truth more and more every single time they get together. That should be a people full of real joy, not always just happy, but a real joy that will survive whatever the next suffering happens to be. But even more than that, when sinners walk through this door, when they encounter a people who believe that Jesus is king, they should find forgiveness. They should find real healing, real hope. Amen? Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that this week in community that you guided us as a worshiping community to the text and the scripture that you had for us today. I'm grateful for the deep truth that we find in it. I'm grateful for the challenge that when I encounter the stuff, I personally feel the weight, questioning my own motives. So I pray that you would continue to soften my heart so that I can come to you for you trust you with the results. I pray that you would lead all of us to be a people who are joyfully obedient because of what we've received. That that becomes visible in us as we are together and as we live. And that we are so overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy that we just can't shut up about it. That we just gotta tell somebody. Just give us the strength and the courage to do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen.